This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello and welcome to another edition of Witnesses of History, where, as ever, I will be reading from the Faber Book of Reportage, by, edited by John Carey, and also some reports from the Daily Telegraph. And there's a lot of conflict in this edition. We start on the 3rd of July, 1863, and Samuel Wilkerson writing his dispatch beside the body of his son, Lieutenant Bayard Wilkerson, who was killed in the first day's fighting at Gettysburg. And this is the Confederate bombardment. So I suppose that should have been Lieutenant Bayard Wilkerson. Gettysburg, fought 35 miles southwest of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, was the turning point of the Civil War. After three days' battle, the Confederate Army, which had invaded the North under General Robert E. Lee, was forced to withdraw. About 23,000 Northern troops fell and 20,000 Southerners. Samuel writes, Who can write the history of a battle whose eyes are immovably fastened upon a central figure of transcendingly absorbing interest, the dead body of an oldest born, crushed by a shell in a position where a battery should never have been sent and abandoned to death in a building where surgeons dared not to stay. For such details as I have the heart for, the battle commenced at daylight on the side of the horseshoe position exactly opposite to that which Yule had sworn to crush through. Musketry preceded the rising of the sun. A thick wood veiled this fight, but out of the leafy darkness arose the smoke and the surging and swelling of the fire. Suddenly, at about ten in the forenoon, the firing on the east side and everywhere about our line ceased. A silence of deep sleep fell upon the field of battle. Our army cooked, ate and slumbered. The rebel army moved a 120 guns to the west and missed their Longstreet's Corps and Hill's Corps to hurl them upon the really weakest point of our entire position. 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, in the shadow cast by the tiny farmhouse, 16 by 20, where General Meade had made his headquarters, lay wearied staff officers and tired reporters. There was not wanting to the peacefulness of the scene the singing of a bird which had a nest in a peach tree within the tiny yard of the whitewashed cottage. In the midst of its warbling, a shell screamed over the house, instantly followed by another and another, and in a moment the air was full of the most complete artillery prelude to an infantry battle that was never exhibited. Every size and form of shell known to British and American gunnery shrieked, moaned, whirled, whistled and wrathfully fluttered over our ground. Through the midst of the storm of screaming and exploding shells, an ambulance, driven by its frenzied conductor at full speed, presented to all of us the marvellous spectacle of a horse going rapidly on three legs. A hinder one had been shot off at the hock. During this fire, the houses at 20 and 30 feet distant was receiving their death and soldiers in federal blue were torn to pieces in the road and died with the peculiar yells that blend the extorted cry of pain with horror and despair. Not an orderly, 
Not an ambulance, not a straggler was to be seen upon the plain swept by this tempest of orchestral death thirty minutes after it commenced. The early Americans, of course, were but Britons, and going back to 1695, we have a report on the English love of fighting from Misson de Valberg. Anything that looks like fighting is delicious to an Englishman. If two little boys quarrel in the street, the passengers stop, make a ring around them in a moment, and set them against one another that they may come to fisticuffs. When it has come to a fight, each pulls off his neckcloth and his waistcoat and gives them to hold to some of the standers by. Then they begin to brandish their fists in the air. The blows are aimed all at the face. They kick one another's shins. They tug one another by the hair. He that has got the other down may give him one blow or two before he rises, but no more. And let the boy get up ever so often. The other is obliged to box him again as often as he requires it. During the fight, the ring of bystanders encouraged the combatants with great delight of heart, never part them while they fight according to the rules. And these bystanders are not only boys, porters and rabble, but all sorts of men of fashion, some thrusting by the mob that they may see plain, others getting upon stalls, and all would hire places if scaffolds could be built in a moment. The father and mother of the boys let them fight on as well as the rest, and hearten him that gives ground or has the worst. These combats are less frequent among men than children, but they're not rare. If a coachman has a dispute about his fare with a gentleman that has hired him, and the gentleman offers to fight him to decide the quarrel, the coachman consents with all his heart. The gentleman pulls off his sword, lays it in some shop with his cane, gloves and cravat, and boxes in the manner that I have described above. If the coachman is soundly drubbed, which happens almost always, that goes for payment. But if he is the beater, the beater must pay the money about which they quarrelled. I once saw the late Duke of Grafton at fisticuffs in the open street with such a fellow whom he lambed most horribly. In France we punish such rascals with our cane and sometimes with the flat of our sword, but in England this is never practised. They use neither sword nor stick against a man that is unarmed, and if any unfortunate stranger, for an Englishman would never take it on into his head, should draw his sword upon one that has none, he'd have a hundred people upon him in a moment. We move on to July 1914, Osbert Sitwell's report. Sir Basil Zaharoff, originally named Basilios Sakarios, millionaire armaments dealer, was made a Knight Grand Cross of the Order of the Bath after the First World War. But this is a report entitled The Vulture, as I say, from July 1914. I was having luncheon at a table alone when an acquaintance asked me if he might sit at it, as the room was full. Our talk was dull, neutral, with no life in it, but towards the end of the meal he turned to me and said quietly, Do you see the man over there by the window with a beaky nose and a white moustache and imperial, wearing a pink carnation? Well, he's a very remarkable man. Look at him carefully. I'll tell you about him. Glancing in the direction indicated, I saw a rather tall, broadly built man with a strange yellow face, strongly marked features and pale sunken eyes. He was dressed in a well-cut English suit and had taken trouble, it could be seen, about his clothes generally. It was difficult racially to place him. He didn't seem to be a Jew, he was too tall and sturdily built. 
But apart from his frame, there was about him an oriental air. He might have been a Turk or a Cypriot. I've seen many money changers in Cyprus who had a little resemble him. There must be something up, my informant continued, or he wouldn't be here. His arrival is always a sign of trouble, and every European chancellery makes a point of knowing where he is. His name is Basil Zaharoff. Certainly there was something both evil and imposing about his figure, and as he grew older, the shell hardened and became more typical. His personal appearance should have put all with whom he came into contact on their guard. It is indeed singular that Western man, while refusing to place credence in anything he cannot see, while rejecting absolutely omens, prophecies and visions, should at the same time, as he so often does, deny the evidence of his own eyes. This armament monger most exactly resembled a vulture, and it is no good pretending, in order to avoid the obvious parallel, that he did not. To some, it may cause surprise that a man who traded in weapons of death and prospects of war and grew fat-bodied on the result of them should have resembled the scaly-necked bird. But whether or not it seems strange depends on one's view of the world and of the immense and startling range of analogy, simile and image that it offers. There, in any case, the likeness was, for all to behold, the beaky face, the hooded eye, the wrinkled neck, the full body, the impression of physical power and of the capacity to wait, the sombre alertness. We move forward to July the 5th, 1976, and the Daily Telegraph's report by Bruce Luden in Nairobi of Israel snatching the hostages in Entebbe. In Israel's most audacious feat of arms to date, a hand-picked force of commandos flew 2,500 miles to Uganda on Saturday night and snatched to freedom more than a 100 hostages being held at Entebbe Airport by skyjackers. Taking the Ugandans and the skyjackers completely by surprise, the commandos landed by moonlight at Entebbe in three huge Hercules transport planes and stormed the buildings where 106 hostages, most of them Jews, were under guard. In the 36-minute battle, 20 Ugandan soldiers and all seven skyjackers, five Palestinians, two Germans, were killed. One of the Germans was a woman. Three of the hostages and one of the commando leaders were killed in the operation, which began only 13 hours before the deadline set for the execution of the hostages. The skyjackers had threatened to kill all 106 hostages at noon yesterday unless 53 pro-Palestinian terrorists were freed from jails in Israel and four other countries. During the fighting, the Israelis destroyed 11 Russian milk MiGs, about a quarter of Uganda's air force, as well as some civilian aircraft. The giant transport planes landed at maximum speed and with astonishing skill. The Israelis stormed the terminal building from all sides, ordering the hostages to dive for cover. The guerrillas were soon shot and the hostages were then ordered into the waiting aircraft, which took off within 40 minutes for Nairobi. President Amin, addressing his military commanders gathered at Entebbe, asserted that everything is normal and under control. He thanked them for repulsing the invaders. Report 
reached Nairobi described the Ugandan leader as emotional and in a state of shock. And we just conclude this with Barry O'Brien's report from Tel Aviv. The freed Skyjack hostages and the commandos who rescued them flew home to a tumultuous welcome in Israel yesterday. A wave of exultation and national pride swept Israel. This operation will become a legend, said Mr. Rabin, the Prime Minister. We started with a report from an American war. And we end with another one from 1965 and look at the South Vietnamese casualty seen by Gavin Young. The Vietnamese War lasted from 1955 to 1975 but escalated rapidly during 65 when communist guerrillas seemed imminent to destroy or control South Vietnam and in response 18,000 American troops had been sent to the country by the end of the year. Gavin Young writes, In 1965, before the American forces landed en masse in Vietnam, the Vietnamese army seemed to be heading for total destruction. It was losing a battalion or two every week, most of them in engagements very close to Saigon. One day, I travelled from Saigon to the riverside township of Mai To, south of the capital, in a bus crowded with Vietnamese citizens and soldiers. Bundles of shopping and chickens cluttered the floor under the seats. We crossed bridges fortified with sandbags and barbed wire and sometimes soldiers stopped the driver and peered in at the passengers. Two laughing Vietnamese behind me leaned over my shoulder. Aren't you frightened of the Viet Cong? Maybe Viet Cong come on bus. A day later, with my light binoculars strapped round my neck, I was walking in a single file of Vietnamese soldiers along the narrow banks that divided the paddy fields of the Mekong Delta. The column was part of a larger force scraped together to clear the Viet Cong out of the area of several square miles of trees, paddies, water buffaloes and hamlets. Sometimes we heard a propeller-driven aircraft overhead and the deep voice of artillery. On the wider tracks, it was possible to break the single file and I walked beside the young Vietnamese soldier who had been in front of me. He looked like a child playing soldier. His helmet was absurdly big, his American carbine too long and heavy. His dull green battle dress revealed the amazing slightness of his body. Small dark crescents of sweat stained his armpits and the small of his back. He pointed at my suede boots and said admiringly, Shoes, you number one. I give them to you. Oh no, you very big, small, me. After a pause, he looked up at me again. Home, America? England. Home, me, Na Trang. You see Na Trang? I hadn't. Up to then, I got to know it later, a small and beautiful city on the South China Sea. It has fine beaches, and in those days a French restaurant served fresh lobsters. So much fishing, Na Trang, the soldier said, smiling. I hadn't met many Vietnamese at that time and I looked at him with interest. Where the fine line of his oriental cheekbones swept down to the rosebud mouth, there was no hint of hair. He couldn't have been much over 19. It began to rain and the dark stain on my new friend's back quickly widened as water dripped from his helmet. He turned his carbine upside down on his shoulder so that the rain wouldn't run down the barrel. Then he put a hand on my sleeve and smiled up at me. You number one friend. Come, Na Trang, okay? I come, Na Trang. 
A sergeant waved impatiently and laid a finger on his lips. In silence now, except for the drumming of the rain and an occasional clink of metal or a cough, we approached the tree line. When the shell burst, my impression was that a small volcano had sprung out of the ground, not that something had fallen from the sky. I felt a tremendous shudder through the soles of my boots, and then the blast threw me to the ground. I lay there, waiting for other shells, but it was not an ambush or even a sustained harassment. Another shell roared much further away, and then heavy silence fell. My heart thumped and my hands shook, and I heard a human sound quite close, half sob, half gasp. A, a helmet lay on the ground like an abandoned seashell, and near it was my friend from Nartrang, clasping his stomach with one hand, pushing feebly at the ground with the other, trying to get up. I went over and stopped him. I put my left hand round his shoulder and made him lean back across my knees. I didn't know what to do next. His eyes were closed, and the rain poured through his hair and down his face and neck. There was a terrible smell. I opened his sodden shirt and saw below his breastbone a dark, shining mess, ripped clothing stained black with rain, blood, bile, and whatever else comes out of bellies torn open by metal splinters. His eyelids flickered open and he frowned. Hurt me, he said faintly. He was dying. He fumbled for my right hand in a futile way I had been trying to wipe the rain from his face and pressed it to the warm, liquid mess. I didn't feel the least disgust. I had an idea that between us we might hold him together. Hurt me, he whispered again. At the inner corner of the delicate half-moon fold of his eyelid, a drop of water had lodged. Rain? A tear? Soon people came and carefully carried him away, limp with his head lolling back as if a hinge in his neck had snapped. I was left with my hands and clothes, stinking of an abattoir. The strap of the binoculars around my neck had snapped, so that the glasses were slippery with blood and bile. Something seemed to have got into the lenses, for later, however much I wiped them, blobs and blotches remained that had not been there before. Well, to finish on a lighter note, from July the 9th, 1979, we go to Wimbledon. And this is a report by Lance Tingay in the Daily Telegraph. Wimbledon's chief 1979 record was the achievement of Bjorn Borg, 23, of Sweden, in winning the men's singles for the fourth successive year and establishing himself as outstanding even among the Titans. He won the final against Roscoe Tanner of America by 6-7, 6-1, 3-6, 6-3, 6-4. It was a very good match and reflected great credit on Tanner. It could be said that Borg played less well than normal, he was more impressively dominating when he beat Connors in the semi-final and Tom Ocker in the quarters. If Borg played a rougher sort of match, it was because Tanner's able tactics forced him to do so. Tanner served well with 14 stinging aces and harried his man from the net continually and exhaustingly. Tanner lived for nearly three hours against the Swede, led by one set to nil, led by two sets to one, and I dare say he had been able to implement his threat to make it four games all in the final set, he would have taken the championship. 
This final was probably the finest spell of Tanner's career. He brought off virtuoso strokes as though they were two a penny, particularly his backhand passing shots. If he did not make a searing winner, he stood no chance at all against Borg. The first set tie-break by which Tanner took his early lead went to him by seven points to four. It turned entirely on two shots, one when Borg put a forehand volley out of court and the next when Tanner projected a winning lob. There was no more than these two vital shots between them. Right to the end of the final set, the match ran the same sort of even course, with Tanner playing the game of his life and testing the champion to the limit. The excitement of this final reached crescendo when Borg, serving to make himself 5-3 in the last set, trailed 15-40. Tanner perpetrated a forehand error because he tried too hard and then was forced to take a volley lower than he liked and his backhand found the net. Borg took the next two points like the giant he is. When two games later at 5-4 he served for the match, Tanner resisted Borg's initial lead of 40-love, and it was not until five points later that the Swede was allowed to clinch victory. It was a splendid climax to the championships. The sporting spirit displayed by both warmed the heart, for each delighted to confront skills which they sought to overcome. Some may be curious as to the other men who have won the Wimbledon singles four times in succession. Lever did it, not in four consecutive years, but in a continuous spell of personal competition, 61, 62, and then in 68 and 69. In the challenge round days, when title defence meant playing one match, the New Zealander Tony Wilding won for the fourth consecutive year in 1913. Laurie Doherty for the fifth year in 1906, Reggie Doherty for the fourth in 1900, and William Renshaw for the sixth year in 1886. You've been listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matias, www.soundimage.org.